Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years, from the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them. AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au. G'day everybody, Aaron Noonan here. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. And before we roll tape on this one, I just had to explain something to you. Now, we recorded this podcast a little while ago. We recorded it a little while ago because our newest recruit, Stefan Bartholomeus, was in the Melbourne office. So we thought we'd let him loose with my good self on a bunch of questions. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because since we recorded the episode, the Mark Larkham news that he wouldn't be part of Supercast TV in 2021 broke, and we thought I should jump on here and tell you uh, why that's not included as a question in this podcast, because it seems really strange to do a Q&A with no Qs and no As about probably the biggest news story for the last little while. Certainly, it's spun up plenty of traffic on uh, the v8sleuth.com.au website in recent days, so I have discussed with Larko uh, coming on the podcast. In fact, we had discussed and arranged a time before the news of his departure from supercars uh, was announced. He's asked to take a rain check, which we, of course, will totally agree with for 2021. He'd rather be able to sit down and have a chat with me, probably over a few beers, to be honest, in a place where he can sit and talk freely about his career and all sorts of things. Right now, there's just been plenty going on. He's probably not quite got the full brain space for it, which we totally appreciate, but he did want to pass on. He's not a social media web type guy all that much, Larko. He's not on socials, but he is aware of the comments you've been posting on our website of the content that's been on v8sleuth.com.au. Don't worry, Mrs. Larkham reads it, Robin reads it, so Larko is aware of, of plenty of it and he wanted to pass on his his thanks to all our listeners and all our readers for their, uh, their support and their care and their best wishes because he's certainly been honestly blown away by um, the support of people. And I, I don't mean to put words in his mouth because he's very much not that kind of guy, but that is the, the sentiment that he certainly expressed in his statement the other day. Right, let's bowl into Q&A. It's myself and Stefan Bartholomew at V8 Sleuth HQ, and we will roll tape on it now. But I just thought I'd explain to you why there's no questions or answers about Larco. Here we go. Let's roll in. Ep 84 of the V8 Sleuth podcast. G'day everybody, it is Aaron Noonan here, the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services, episode 84, but it is episode one for my co-host on this one, our new signing, our new number one draft pick of the year, Stefan Bartholomeus, welcome to the V8 Sleuth Podcast. Thanks Aaron, a rookie alert there for everybody listening straight up, <laughs> so uh, let's hope it goes alright. I think you'll be fine, I think you'll be fine. We've got a huge amount of questions. It's that time of year where the racing has ended, so uh, people have got time to ponder what has happened this year, what's going to happen next year, what's happening in the scene. Uh, we've got what four pages of questions here. It's a little bit off the uh, off the off the chart of normality. So we had to we had to cull a couple really to be able to fit all of these in. Shall we? Shall we bounce? Shall we get into this? Let's go. All right. A couple of well. A lot of people, and I, I picked just one or two, Anthony Kernich and Scott Williams, along the same lines of topic. Uh, Scott says, have Victorian supercar fans been screwed 
with the loss of Sandown and Phillip Island next year. And Anthony says, why was Sandown dropped from the schedule? So I've sort of clumped those together. Well, Phillip Island wasn't hasn't been dropped because it was already dropped. It wasn't on the original calendar for 19. And But the one that irks me, I've got a lot of love for Sandown, and it feels like it's just constantly in, out, up, down. I know this year's been strange with the COVID restrictions in Victoria, and at the time Victoria was struggling, but it feels like this football, it just gets kicked around Sandown over the years, depending on which way the wind's blowing. Yeah, I think it's disappointing for all race fans not to have Sandown or Phillip Island on there. I mean, whether Victorian fans in particular have been screwed or not probably depends on whether the COVID restrictions allow them to go to a race meeting next year. Otherwise, it probably doesn't matter if it's at Sandown or on the Rings of Saturn. Like, <laughs> it, if you can't go, you can't go. But certainly, I have empathy for supercars with putting together the 2021 schedule. It's not easy. Any calendar is hard to put together, let alone the yeah. calendar in the COVID times. And. Clearly, they needed to cull the events down a bit back to 12 to save some money for the teams to keep everyone going. So it's disappointing not to have Sandown or Phillip Island on there. But when you start looking at what could come out while maintaining the national footprint that they proudly have, it gets a bit trickier. The thing that, um, the thing that did irk me was losing the Sandown 500. Don't Taking the me. 500 format away from that is just again, disrespectful again, to the heritage of the sport. Again, we piss around. With the Sandown 500. Now, I get that we're not going to have a 500 anywhere next year because, and we didn't have one this year because of COVID and they want to save some costs. So I totally understand that. But we've been in and out of the Sandown 500 five million times before. Let's go to Ipswich. Let's go to the Bend. Let's go to Phillip Island. And it always came back, but we can't even have kept it on the calendar. I can't help but feel somewhere along the line next year, something's going to change in that calendar and it's the it's the first reserve, basically. We we know that. I think it's going to pop up somewhere somehow that there'll be a if there's a drama with New Zealand later in the year. If the Grand Prix doesn't go ahead, clearly that's a an obvious one to fill that slot. But I think for a, a sport that plays off its history so much at the, certain times and then abandons it all on other occasions just as much. It's puzzling, but I take your point. It's bloody hard to put together a calendar that will keep everybody happy. You will never, if you try to keep everybody happy in life, you'll make nobody happy. So I, I agree with you that I have empathy for supercars. I'm not whacking supercars. It's really hard to put a calendar together with the COVID stuff, with keeping governments happy, finding the right dates, keeping pr- promoters and circuits happy. It's a constant juggling act, but that we couldn't find a place for Sandown. I can't help but feel that is it because Winton gets in because it's regional Victoria, so the government wants to, if they're going to stick some money in, it's got to be a regional event. I totally understand. I think it's great that Winton's found a way to stay on there, but we couldn't squeeze Sandown in. It's it's prime. It's metro Melbourne. It's got all the history and heritage. They've just invested all that money in the uh, the works at the circuit and it's going to not have a supercars event, probably, maybe, hopefully um, it does next year. It's just a little staggering. But I don't think it's a particularly – it's not a particular up yours to Victorian race fans. Uh, I think if you go right back, Shane Rogers here in the office reminded us that in 1997, I think it was three three of the first four or four of the first five events, including the Grand Prix, were all in Victoria. (laughs) You had the Grand Prix, non-championship, Round one at Calder Under Lights, round two at Phillip Island, round three at Sandown, and round five at Winton. 
So four of the first five, plus you had the Sandown 500 later in the year. So we have been spoilt over the journey. It's just now we're probably copying our medicine a little bit. And you mentioned government funding there, which is obviously a big part of the puzzle too because almost all of the events need that um, component to make them work. And New South Wales government clearly is coming to the party a little bit more than the Victorian government. Otherwise, we wouldn't be going to Bathurst twice, having the Sydney under lights and all that sort of thing. But I think like clearly this, as you say, with the 500, this is not the first, this current Supercards administration is not the first to take the 500 away from Sandown. But I think it's even more galling now where we all really know that Sandown doesn't have that long left. We don't know how long exactly until it gets sold and turned into housing. But when you've got when you've got a, a loved one and you don't really know how long they got left and you don't even visit, come on. Mm. Yeah, it's a good, yeah, good way of putting it. I like that. I like that. Julie Jones is a long-time sleuth follower and listener, uh, loves the podcast. That's a good way to guarantee that your question gets in. Uh, what effect will losing Shippy, Grant McPherson, engineer, uh, have on Car 97, Shane Van Gisbergen for next season? Of course, Grant's on his way to Walkinshaw Andretti United. He's on gardening leave for six months, so he doesn't start till mid 2021, he takes up a spot that kind of sits below Carl Foe but above the car race engineers, kind of the head of engineering. We've seen this before with Triple Eight. You pull a great big plank of wood out of their pile called Ludo Lacroix, they've still won stuff. They're still running at the front. I think the great secret here is it's no one person that creates the success of any of these teams, so Triple Eight will be fine. Is that analogy uh, saying that Roland Dane's the Jenga master? Is that what you're saying here on the V8 Sleuth podcast? <laughs> don't put words into my mouth, Stefan. Do you want to come back and do this again? Uh, well, yeah, you could say I don't see it having any effect. I'm interested to see, obviously, Wes McDougall's joined that team now from Matt Stone Racing. Does he slot straight into that engineer spot and engineers car 97 or do they shuffle it all around? Who knows? I'm not sure. I'm sure they won't tell us until next year. Yeah, they haven't confirmed that back, but that, that yet. But there are a lot of people sort of drawing that conclusion that someone who's a race engineer, an experienced race engineer, who's been working at Matt Stones on a Triple Eight car, has built that relationship with Triple Eight through being a customer team. It'd give a bit of a head start for a race engineer to at least know the product, even if he's probably not got all the bells and whistles down there at the customer team that he'd have. At Triple Eight, I think it, it's got to have some effect though, right? I mean, we talk all the time about the importance of the dynamic between the driver and the engineer and that relationship and speaking the same language. And even the best race engineer in the world doesn't actually know what the car feels like going around turn seven. They have to rely on the driver feedback and obviously the data as well. But they need to turn that driver feedback into actual changes that they can tell the mechanics to put this spring in it, do a click on the damper, blah, blah, blah. So I think it always takes a little bit of time to get that language together, but it couldn't be a better scenario in terms of potentially having that engineer who's got triplet experience and also the fact that Shane's got so much experience. I mean, mm. it's easy to forget he that. Could he, he could lead. He won the championship in his first year with Shippy. Yeah. So clearly that didn't take too long. <laughs> they did have a, little, a few ups and downs early that year, but I think like he's worked with a bunch of people before. When he went to Techno, he came out and blitzed everyone at the Adelaide 500 first mm. time out. Mm. He's got that experience in supercars and in other categories too, where he's worked with a lot of different people, even people speaking literally different languages <laughs> over where he's raced before. So, yeah, that's a quality team and they will bounce back. Yeah, I, I don't think it'll – it will have an effect, but for a short period of time. It, it, but what it does is it reinvigorates a place. So, suddenly you now pull a guy out who's been there for, what, five or six years, I think it should be, was it, Triple Eight? Um, refresh 
So you've had Jeremy Moore come back. You, you bring in Wes McDougall. You might swap some roles around. Everything's a bit refreshed and revived. And away they go again. They they re-energize and they reinvent and, and carry on. And there. I think like with, with that team, like yes, Shippy does have great design skills away from the race engineering that we see too. But everyone at Triple Eight really contributes to that design. I think even even Dado does a bit of drawing on occasion as well. And JJ Jeremy Moore really leads that, which I think is um, is probably in a way related to why Shippy has made this move. Because when JJ came back from Porsche in Germany. It kind of put a little bit of a cap there for Shippy on where he could go within AAA. Mm. So I think it's exciting for him to have a new challenge down there too. Not the first time we've seen someone leave AAA, go on gardening leave and go to mm-hmm. Walkinshaw's either. Uh, remember Adrian Burgess did that. Uh, Tim Wittemans, I'm giving this our Castrol question of the week because this is – it sounds like a simple question, but it's actually quite involved with the answer. It does feel like the sort of question I should be asking you, Mr. Yeah. Slew. <laughs> it's, what's the process for deregistering a supercar that's been written off or exported overseas, etc.? Now, I could have told you in very basic terms what it means, but I went to uh, seek some further clarification from those uh, learned people in the industry, and a big thank you to Mitch Timms at Supercars who spent some time with us to, to explain some of these. So... Basically, when you talk about, and you read about it in the press here and there, a deregistered car, probably the most um, discussed one is the ex-DJR Falcon that was sent to America to Penske's that has got Mustang panel work on it now that has been on display uh, at uh, Dearborn, I think, for a little while. Uh, Ryan Briscoe's driven it, uh, doing some demo stuff. It was at the the Penske concourse earlier in the year in, um, in the States. So basically... The key part of deregistering a supercar is applying to Motorsport Australia to change the category in the logbook of the car. So basically what you're saying is this is a car that no longer has the intent of being used in supercars competition because remember that if you're in supercars competition, whether it be the main game or Super 2, you are bound by the rules. So testing when you can and can't run a car, what you can and can't do. So as Mitch pointed out, when it's registered as a supercar, the logbook lists it as – sorry if this is getting a bit nerdy, but I'm sure Tim and there's a bunch of sleuth listeners who think that this is a bit interesting, and I think it's a bit interesting too. The category changes um, – it's in there as a three-touring car, and the group code is 3A, which is V8 supercars. So there's really strict limitations on testing and when and where and how you can run the cars. Um, so when that car's deregistered, the fields change – by Motorsport Australia, updated logbook, um, and then the same scenario. If a car sold off overseas, it gets deregistered by Motorsport Australia because they are the ones who issue the logbooks for the race cars, not supercars. It's actually a, a Motorsport Australia thing. And then they can be re-logbooked with the various FIA, ASNs around the world, like what Motorsport Australia is in, in this part of the land. Um, occasionally, supercars might ask for a few additional demands on cars that go overseas so that falcon that i mentioned um it it was converted to mustang in the states and that car has had to have a front bar fitted with the under tray cut out of it the rear wing elements had its gurney flat removed and it's just so it's not in the current spec of the current race cars so if anyone ever tried to do any well if they did some running with it on a track doing a demo ryan briscoe they're not getting anything out of it there's it's not relative data or comparative knowledge and once a car's deregistered generally they won't permit you to re-register it. So it stops people deregistering a car, going and doing a bunch of testing that they shouldn't, and then re-registering it. So 
there's one or two exceptions over the years, mainly through force majeure, but more about crash cars. A team doesn't have another car for the next round in two weeks, so they've pulled one out of the off the shelf to to bring back. So basically, that gives you a bit of an idea on what a deregistered car is and what the process is. Um, and I think at the moment, supercars. There's a few new chassis being built. There's now about 105 Car of the Future chassis all up, plus, of course, all the previous cars that have, have run. So it's a fair amount of cars to register and deregister, I guess. So, um, yeah, that kind of explains it. Did, did that make sense? Oh, it does. And, and taking in all that makes you think, like, it's amazing that it was only just over 10 years ago that there was people allowed to send cars to wind tunnels, shaker rigs, the whole shooting match over uh, over in the States in particular. And it's been really tightly controlled since then. It's all come come down. That was our question of the week, thanks to Castrol, because Castrol is more than just oil. It is liquid engineering, and Castrol provides the oils, the fluids, the lubricants for today and the future for every driver, every rider, and every industry. You can follow Castro on Facebook to stay across the latest in motorsport, exclusive comps, and much, much more. Next question, Stefano. Ooh, I reckon you've got an opinion on this. Chris Moore, would supercars ever go paddle shift? It, uh, it's something they haven't yet confirmed for Gen 3, but uh, I think we can be pretty confident to say that it's, it's on the table. It's being discussed. If you're a betting man, you might even put a dollar on it. Um, it's something that Triple um, Eight have actually championed for publicly in the past on the grounds, I believe, of safety. We saw, obviously, with Chaz Mostert when he had that big shunt at Bathurst in 2015 that um, part of his injuries, his broken leg, was from hitting the gear shifter which going to paddles, naturally, it, it takes that out of the cockpit. It cleans that side up a little bit. But um, but we fixed that up by putting the leg intrusion side um, carbon bars and the, the, you know, the protecting elements that protect the leg from going up against the gear shift, which is what happened to Chaz. His leg clattered up against it, and, of course, with such force that it snapped it. So uh, I, can we argue that the other point there that, well, you don't, that's, that's a moot point safety because we've fixed that issue. Yeah, that wasn't an issue that they could wait five years for a new gen car or no, whatever to fix that. They yeah. went in and, and full credit, they went in and fixed it straight away. But yeah, certainly I would not like to see paddle shift coming in. I think um, we've got to be careful here that uh, even though we'll have two-door coupes, we're not GT racing. If you look at the onboard of someone driving a GT3 car versus a supercar where you've got three pedals with the feet dancing across mm. them and and ripping the gear stick with the old left hand like it's part of the theatre of the sport, it's part of the action, and to lose all that would be quite disappointing. I know that the extract gearbox that came in a couple of years ago and will continue into Gen 3, that and the MoTeC engine management system that, that runs it has been configured to be able to introduce a paddle shift, and Triple Eight did develop a sort of a little bit of a rudimentary paddle shift shift for the Sandman when they did that a few years ago, which I think was run in the old box. But um, it's certainly something that's been in the works for a while. I don't think they should do it. I think it takes away from the DNA. They talk about DNA of supercars and we're going in a whole phase and era now that people are either embracing it or rejecting it, that it's not like it used to be. Well, nothing will ever be what it used to be. Everything evolves, everything changes. Whether you you like it or not, that's just how it's going to be. But I I don't think they need to go down this pathway. I I understand the safety element, but I think we've dealt with that. Um, 
and you're right. We want to. I mean, what's Caruso going to do? Like seriously, you can't do rapid paddle changes. That's going to be so boring to watch when he gets in and drives one of those cars. We need to. We need. He needs to have a stick shift. We cannot do this. Uh, I'm arguing on the Michael Caruso principle that you can't do rapid downshifts if you're on a paddle shift. It doesn't look any good. And one thing you do see with um, pretty much all paddle shift race cars that, that I've seen is they have an auto blip as part of that system. So that takes away also that foot skill. Yeah. And, well, and well, we took that. away the skill of the H-pattern gearbox, which was an art of its own. Oh, it's too hard for the internationals to drive. But I think more so it stops over revs, saves engine bills, all that. I was cool with that. But now going from sequential to paddle, yeah. nah, fail. I don't, I don't think it passes the pub test. Yeah, well, I think a key part of the argument is that theory that it'll be more attractive to manufacturers because there's high-end car manufacturers. Stop trying to make it appealing to manufacturers. Make it appealing to race teams and fans. And if you can get some IP deals with some manufacturers done, great bonus. But don't do the whole, oh, we're catering for manufacturers. Here's a little tip. They're not interested. Just do the IP thing. Move on. Put the fans first. Correct. And just do what's required to keep the thing rolling along and not costing a stupid amount of money. Every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars. Unforgettable. Uh, Ryan Oldershaw's next. Even though the supercars at the Grand Prix had no racing happen, but it still counts as a round. So what particular thing during that race weekend must happen for it to constitute a round, which is in sort of a stats land question? Um... Basically, Ryan, that the cars went on the track, they practiced, and they qualified for two of the four races. So, in my, in our, the way we count it here, a round starts once one of those things happens: practice, qualifying, race, warm up, whatever it is. Once the cars roll for practice, the round has started. If you've driven out of the pit lane, and you've started, you get violently ill on the third lap of practice, you pit, and you don't get back in the car for the rest of the weekend. He started the round. James Courtney at Sydney Motorsport Park a few years ago got hit by the sign on, was it Friday afternoon? Um, started the round. Jack Perkins took over. He's got a round start next to his name. So all of those drivers have a, a start for their rounds in their stati- statistics because they actually took to the track. Now, yes, they didn't race, so obviously there's no race start stats that have been added to that. But Jamie Winkup got a couple of poles. I think he got one in Van Gisbergen got one. So, yeah, so there are two pole positions from Albert Park 2020 that are on the stat sheet. They earned them. They got the armour all check. I'm not sure that they wore the helmet, but they... I just hope when they try to cash the check that it didn't bounce. Yeah, that would have been awkward. Albert Park cashed. That can't have been a thing. It didn't happen. So there you go, Ryan. That explains that. Gary Austin Eames, uh, with the demand for Rex at the moment, why don't supercars release the two parked ones? Now, Rex and slices of the pie is a topic we've discussed a lot on this podcast and a lot on the website over the years. I've sort of explained it a million times, so you can explain it because it's your first podcast. It is a great question, though, because it's one of the fundamentals of the sport that uh, unless you actually know what goes on behind it, behind the curtain there, why can't we have more cars, especially... The theory would make sense that it's just better all around if you have more. 
but effectively with with a rec being the right to, to enter a car but also representing a percentage of the ownership of the supercars business that uh, that uh, allows you to get a dividend out of the business and uh, the more recs that are out there currently the more different people sharing that sharing that pie and the less money each individual rec holder gets so it's a uh, it's a difficult situation, but also having a couple of less wrecks in the market than we had previously ensures that the demand for those wrecks um, is still is still up there. And we've seen a few change hands recently, and a, a few teams trying to scramble to get one, and perhaps not all that wanted one getting one. So um, supply and demand—it's the old classic thing. If there's not enough of them, it's no different to you know we do a limited edition book that there's only X thousand of. And there's X thousand plus another thousand who really want one. Well, it's going to hold the value in it because it's there's not a million of the things lying around. So uh, less is more in terms of value. But you got to. I mean, it's no different to if someone said, "Look, you're going to have to share more of your toys with other people in the sandpit." Generally, you're going to have to be really convinced on why you should do that. So the slice of the pie scenario is the best one to I think explain that by. So. Um, I think there's also political pressure there. So, you, you know, obviously there's pressure to go, well, hang on a minute. A team's handed one back in the past. Now they want it back. You can't sort of pick and choose either, you know, keep it or don't. Um, and as we record this podcast, it's a little bit before we air this one. So there could be something that's gone down in the time between when we record uh, because these things happen really quick with wrecks and approvals and denials and but, all that sort yeah, of stuff. It's, it's a great point because you you can't be a fair weather friend with, with the wreck stuff. Um, certainly, if if you want to be there for the good times and, and have a wreck, then you've got to be there for the bad times as well. You can't just put it on the shelf for a year and expect to get it back. Well, there are rules about how long you can lease them for and, and you kind of got to step up or step down at some point too, which we've seen over the years with, with other teams. And I guess the demand for wrecks is a good little segue in that there's a demand at the moment for Christmas presents because uh, we're pretty much past now that point where Australia Post have said, hey, yeah, we can deliver your stuff on time for Christmas. So by all means, jump on our online store, bookshop.vhsleuth.com.au, gift card. It is the get-out-of-jail-free present for a motorsport fan for Christmas in 2020, uh, whether it's books, prints, DVDs, posters, magazines, whatever it is that you think they might be keen on. Obviously, it's probably unlikely it's going to be able to get to you if you ordered it today, tomorrow, or a week out from Christmas. Uh, but if you get a gift card, you give it. it turns up electronically, you can print it out and put it in a card, or you can email it on, or you can do whatever – and they can spend it in their own time. So jump on our website, bookshop.vhsleuth.com.au. Uh, by the way, this is the first time we've had you on the pod. Uh, just quickly, before we go to the next question, Glenn Seaton book, did you enjoy putting that together? I think you spent copious amounts of time at the kitchen table with Cedo over the last, what, five months or so. Have you enjoyed the process of putting that all together? Absolutely, and I was I was always going to enjoy it. Um, it's right there in my era that I, I grew up watching watching Glenn race through the '90s, in particular um, when he was there fighting for championships. And uh, it's just such a classic era of the sport. But for me, what was even better than me enjoying the process was how much Glenn got out of it as well, because he's not the sort of guy to sit around um, thinking about his success, and he doesn't uh, fill his house with with trophies and, and helmets and stuff like that. He's a very humble humble guy, and I think. Um, Reflecting on the whole story from where he started in Moorbank with a pretty sort of humble um, sort of surroundings there, um, just with Dad in the in the back shed tinkering away on a Capri, and uh, to build what he did into a career that had a race team with the backing of giants like Ford and and Philip Morris, um, and then to to sort of cop a hit and then come back and win another championship with a very small team, 
um, yeah, I think the ability for him to look back on that was fantastic. Did he make all the coffee for this time? Because there's surely there was plenty of coffee consumed to put together a 320-page, what was it, 60-odd thousand word book. Well, in my diligent research, as you have to do to fit in around here at V8 Sleuth, <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd read somewhere that he's a, he's a white tea drinker. Oh. And uh, so not only did we have a couple while we were at his house uh, sort of chewing the fat, but um, I got a box for at home for when I was uh, when I was putting all his his words down on 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 the page. So you to felt really like you're try in the to mode. get into the yeah Cedo mode. So I didn't have the drink straw going. I uh, I probably should have thought of that, but uh, hopefully that doesn't come through in the book. So do you have like copious amounts of white tea still at your house that you haven't used? I may have uh, may have been overly ambitious with how much I'd get through. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like to see that as me efficiently working through the book that it's, I didn't need all the tea. It's a so, good point. Um, it's a good point. I like it. I like it. But next time, hopefully, we can do a book about someone who just loved beers. Yeah. Well, there's a few of those guys around. I reckon we could probably find someone to do that with. That's that's no problem there. Uh, Brenton Thorpe, why do supercars only last 25-odd laps before refueling at Bathurst these days? In the 90s, they were doing 35-odd laps. Are the fuel tanks smaller or is it a byproduct of the increased race pace? Well, it's actually, those things are elements, but it's not the big reason why. Yeah, there's one letter and two numbers that answers that, and mm-hmm. that's E85 in 2009, I believe yeah, it was, was when yeah. they went from uh, the, I think, 100-octane fuel to the uh, E85. They, uh, yeah, it just doesn't have as much energy per per litre or however you want to measure it, and they have to use more to uh, to get through that many kilometres. Yeah, don't get as many laps in, hence why the, the pit stop fuel windows and the like have, have changed a little bit. Matt Bottrell's a regular question asker. Is that a technical description? I think it is. It's your podcast. Ah, true. It's a technical description. He says, I know DJR are not the only ones – oh, sorry. He knows that they're not one for carrying the number one on their cars. That's why I tripped over that. A lot of ones in that sentence. But hypothetically – are they allowed to run number one at the Bathurst 1000 next year with Scott McLaughlin returning for the race? The answer is yes. He is the reigning driver's champion of supercars. He has the right to run number one. He's the only one with the right to run number one next year. But he won't because, as we've seen the last few years, he valued the number 17, the history of it, that Dick Johnson never ran number one when he won his five championships. So... Hypothetically, yes, they're allowed to, but they won't. Yeah, and uh, we're hearing that the second car might be number 11 next year at DJR rather than number 12. Yeah, we read that in recent times. I think our friend Andrew Van Leeuwen might have reported that one on a... Look, I'm not afraid to mention other websites and other podcasts. So it was on motorsport.com, but it queued outrage from people saying, bullshit, 11 is Larry Perkins' number. Don't go there. Don't go there. Things move on. That's life. I did also punch number 11 into the uh, AN1 media or the AN1 database here when when I started and saw that there were a lot of people that ran number 11 in the Touring Cup Championship yeah, before Larry. Not so, just Larry. And yeah. after. Yeah, definitely. And and with DJR, we should mention too, National Motor Racing Museum, the Dick Johnson Exhibition, there's some cool cars on display up there uh, over the course of the year. And if you've been locked down in the last few months or you're, you're getting out for Christmas holidays or you're travelling through central west New South Wales, if you, you're going to go do your lap of Bathurst, which is kind of the tradition if you're anywhere near it, travelling at that um, part of the country, stop in the museum. There are so many things to have a look at. And the DJR exhibition's got some amazing cars. Of course, the 40th anniversary this year, of the Rock 1980 and 
Next year's the 40th anniversary of the first Bathurst win, so there's probably a couple of years worth of 40th anniversaries to roll out there for for Dick Johnson and and DJR. Uh, Dale Notley has the next question. Is Alan Jones, Stefan, the only Formula One world champ or even Formula One Grand Prix race winner to also win an Australian Touring Car Championship slash Supercars Championship race? Is this uh, is this my probation hanging on this uh, this answer? <laughs> because well, I believe on the answer. I believe he would be. Yes. Yeah, he is. Yeah. This is the look. Sebastian Bourdais. Remember, he ran Formula One but didn't win a Grand Prix. Won with Jamie Winkup on the Gold Coast a couple of years in a row. Mika Salo won with Will Davison on the Gold Coast, but famously, nearly should have won a Grand Prix for Ferrari, but had to stand aside for Eddie Irvine, who was trying to win the World Championship in '99. Uh, so, yeah, it's AJ. He's the only bloke that um, has managed to do that. So, yeah, that was an easy one. I'm interested in this one. I, I'm really interested in this one. Chris Patterson, following on from the Andy Raymond podcast, which, by the way, uh, we had great feedback for and a lot of people really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed it too. He said, can supercars benefit from someone taking on a Stone Cold or Chris Jericho persona? Now, do you, do you know anything about wrestling at all? So we've had a deregistering chassis question and now this wrestling question. Are, are the these your burner podcasts. accounts? Are these <laughs> actually real fan questions? They're real. They're legit. Well, I think the stage is all yours because Stone Cold to me sounds like a beer rather than Sounds a like blunt, a white so. tea, actually, when you've not done it quite right. <laughs> I don't think you can – so the the questions Craig's asking, you know, someone to be a character, someone to be a um, an enforcer, someone who can be a – Black hat, you know, all that sort of thing. I don't think you you can't do it unless it naturally occurs. You can't anoint someone with, you're going to play that role, you're going to play that part, you're going to do this, you're going to antagonise him. It doesn't really work. The world of WWE scripted uh, entertainment doesn't work in an organic sporting sense. But I would love to see someone drop a Stone Cold Sunner on someone in pit lane. I reckon that'd be that'd be ace. You don't know what I'm talking about, though, do you? All I was thinking there is, can Peter Adderton drive? Because he is the provocateur, the disruptor of the supercars paddock, and we definitely need more of that. But whether we can get to a point where a driver can be that outspoken uh, without worrying about what their sponsor says. I can't see it. Can't see it. Um, Reynolds is as close as we've gotten. I don't think he's uh, he's just being Dave Reynolds. He's not trying to do anything else. So, uh, I don't think he actually technically counts. Uh, technical question coming up next. So from WWE to... Uh, technical stuff. Steve Cooper, he'd like to know the technical reason that the Nissan Altima is so competitive in Super 2 but really struggled in the Supercars Championship. Is it something you guys can answer? Well, it's a complex one, but the basic thing is comparative to... I mean, the fields are just different. It's far tougher competition in the main championship than in Super 2. So comparative relationship-wise performance... Matt White's team in Super 2 versus who they've got to race against versus the Kellys and what they've got to race against. Um, it, it, there's no real... Um, there's no technical smoking gun in there. That no, no, the that, that's that's the term I was I was thinking of. And I also um, sought a bit of counsel on this because I thought, oh, hang on, I need some, some answer. But there's the supercar technical... Um, the vehicle specification, vehicle specification document. document. The and so for the Nissan Altima, the VF Commodore and the FGX Falcon that's running in Super 2 still, that was from 2015 when the FGX came in. So basically those cars are 
I guess, matched how they are from 2015. But the engine specification document's different. doesn't have to match. So that can you can go right up to 2019. But, of course, remember that the Nissan Altima program was dying away, so I don't think there's many parts or not as much development going on in 19. So having a 2019 spec Nissan engine is probably not much different from 2018 or 2017. So teams in Super 2 can actually push that window right through to recent times on their vehicle, uh, sorry, on their engine uh, side of things. And and the other thing is too, Matt White's team's done a really good job and they've had two very good drivers. Well, they've had multiple good drivers, but the two that have won the series, Tom Randall and Bryce Fullwood, have shown when they've done a bit of stuff in main game, their class, their talent, their ability. So it's probably a case of Matthew White, do you think, has not had enough credit for the results that they've got uh, because they've been able to – they can only race against who they're racing against and they've beaten them all. Yeah, I think that's the real answer to this question, that uh, Matty White runs a really good racing team and uh, he's done really well to be in it for this long, um, but not only that, actually succeed. And as part of that, he's always tended to have some people that can bring some budget, but then also someone that can actually fight – for the championship so um we've seen them win the last two years and they're i think fully deserving of that what what would be great to see and they talked about doing it for 2020 but couldn't get any deals done and then have sort of mooted that they could do it with one car in in 21 is to see kelly racing actually run an altima in super two because that would give us a direct comparison certainly when we saw uh, maddie white's team do a couple of wild cards in the main game it's not like they blew the doors off off kelly's um, I think Matty White's team is really good at having a baseline, understanding the car, and just just rolling that out. Mm. Whereas Kelly's, especially when you've got that increased competition of having to beat, you've got to beat Triple Eight, Penske's, and Erebus rather than Eggleston's. But and Tickford and Walkinshaw yeah. and Brad Jones Racing, who you know you're taking on in Super Two. But, as but well. if you look at the direct comparison in the 2020 Super Two series, the nearest cars were an Eggleston. Car, which is a triple eight car, but run by a very much smaller team. But not a triple eight factory car. Exactly. And Image Racing running an, an Erebus car and Matt Charters running an ex Penske car. It's sort of, but it's not, it's not, not, it's not like for like in yeah. terms of that comparison. But, um, yeah. And when you've got to go and, and beat those big dogs, you've got to sort of take bigger swings at uh, the next chunk of lap time that you've got to try to find, which is where Kelly's have been quite up and down. But even if you look at, say, 2015, I think Rico had like three podiums that year. So the peak performance was actually quite good. And Maddie's been very good at getting a near peak performance out of that car consistently week to week, and hence they won a couple of titles. It's been a very good grooming um, platform, a very good development category, not just the category, but his team, you go back through now, the drivers who've come through and raced his cars in Super 2, a little bit of Super 3 there along the way as well. It's a pretty handy list now of guys who've been able to go through and progress up the ladder that way. And, of course, Jay Robotham's kind of the next one on their queue from his performances in Super 3 this year. Uh, Shane HSV. I don't think he's changed his surname by Deepold HSV, but he may have. You never well, we know. did have Ryan Aldershaw before that I was suspicious may be a certain Supercars team owner that's just tweaked his name up oh, a little well, bit. So well. now we've got a HSV. It's all, it's well, all linking together. Yeah, no, well, I'm... I can I can confirm Ryan Oldershaw is not Ryan Walkinshaw. I can I can give you the tip. Um, Shane HSV, the gearboxes, rims, and tires owned by supercars. Do the teams lease them, and at what cost? Ah, now this is an important one. So that's not quite right. They are control items. So the gearbox is an X track. Formerly it was Albans, which is based in Ballarat. 
Um, the rims are a control rim. Everyone's got the same style of rim. And, of course, the tyre is a Dunlop control tyre that everyone uses. So not right to say that they're – and this is a good – when maybe some of our fans hear the term control, and I, I can understand how people might think that those elements, they're all the same. So buy it from supercars, lease it from supercars, whatever it is. But uh, the teams don't lease them, Shane. Um, they own them. They are their property, but that's what they have to have to be able to run in the championship. They can't go and use something else. So um, control items are very much that it's controlled in terms of the spec and the brand and the particular item, but um, you got to get your checkbook out. You don't uh, just uh, borrow it and hand it back or anything like that. You could argue that the tyres are a lease because they do have to hand them back well, at the yeah, end. Well, actually, uh, yeah. Something I, that I you have with to buy and, and rims, then, But with yeah. tyres, that's a very good point. You've... You do pay for use, but of course, once you've used them, you've used them. You can't really do much with them. And I guess for those who are uh, curious, I think um, we can give some rough numbers on on these things. Like the tires are just under three hundred bucks a tire, which, which is pretty for good a, for racing tires. Yeah, it's heavily subsidised by Dunlop as mm. as part of that deal. Uh, I think for a wheel, it sort of depends on how big a batch you get out there from Racer Industries, who uh, who are the agent for them. But they're about seven hundred bucks a wheel, something like that. So you're looking at a grand a corner just to have it sitting there, and then an extract box, you're sort of in the 50K sort of ballpark. To- and the extract box, we should point out, that's one of the things that will carry through into the Gen 3 car, that commercial relationship with extract and supercars rolls on. So that's one of the few elements of the current car that will flow into the new car. It's one of the very few items that'll that'll carry over. So yeah, and even just that as a little snapshot, when you think of if a gearbox is fifty k and they're carrying a whole a whole room full of them back at the shop, um, the the cost of making that all redundant if they went to another gearbox, which obviously they did a couple of years ago with Xtrack um, taking over from Albans, um, there's a lot of money burnt and a lot of money that needs to be recouped from selling it to, to Super 2 teams or whatever. Yeah, and of course the Albans unit has still been used by Super 2 teams, we should point out too. Some people have asked whether um, they've all converted across or not, but that, that hasn't been the case. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. But I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, you might know their name and recognise their logo, but did you know that Timken bearings are used in some of the world's largest wind turbines, some standing as tall as 260 metres, that's almost twice the height of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and with rotors as big as 220 metres in diameter. That's almost the distance from the start line to Hell Corner at Mount Panorama. Now these rotors turn on big shafts and at each end is a massive Timken tapered roller bearing. The biggest one with an outside diameter of 3.425 metres. That's about three quarters the length of a supercar race car. The bearings have to be perfectly reliable in withstanding massive loads and in extreme conditions like in the North Sea where a single turbine is expected to produce enough renewable sourced energy to power 16,000 European homes year-round. We'll bring you some more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast this year. Now, it's back to the podcast. Next question, Daniel Hollingsworth. Does that name sound like anybody else? Uh, Lee Hollingsworth? Yeah, I was just thinking. I think we could compare everybody's name to a real supercars-related identity, but... um, this is a good one. Non-car related. I like when people throw in non-car racing questions for us. What TV series have you been watching during lockdown? That could still be a car racing question. Could still be. Yeah. 
Well, living in Queensland, uh, what's this word lockdown? Can you explain it to me? Uh, Sounds it's this, horrible. It's this thing that we've done for a long time here in Victoria uh, where we sat at home, uh, watched lots of telly, uh, walked the dog a fair bit, and that's about it. Yeah, it was a thing we did for a while while we watched uh, the news of you guys all out drinking beers and going to the footy and doing all that stuff. That's pretty much what it was. Um I didn't really get time to watch a great deal because I still was working and just pressing on all the way through. But I tell you what, I sat down for the weekend and watched, uh, well, you know when you watch a series and you think, oh, watch one, but it gets you and then you just smash them and you do six in a night or you do four one day or whatever it is. So the test on Amazon that follow the Australian cricket team, I love cricket. I thought, I'll just watch one, and then I'll watch it as I go. And I think it was an Amazon trial, you know, seven days free or something. Oh, that's how they get got you. Got me, got me, I'm in, I'm on. Kept a subscription to watch other stuff on there. I thought that was that was fantastic. If you're not – my wife watched it with me. She's not a cricket fan at all. But if it's well told, well shot, great insight. I mean, you saw stuff that you go, whoa, that's in the changing rooms. That's where you've never been with a camera before. I thought it was that was really cool, really cool. That's that was the thing that I binged. I think is the term, isn't it? Is that in the dictionary now? Surely, oh, it's, I think it's been there for a while. I know, but from a new <laughs> new perspective of to watch copious amounts of one television series in one sitting is probably the new definition, rather than to plow down forty three hamburgers in a row. So why not both? Yeah, uh, anything that you've watched online or in socials or on streaming or on TV that's caught your interest or you've become a convert to. Someone wrote me into doing a book during this, uh, the heart of the COVID period. So what a prick. I had the 97 ATCC highlights on for a while, but that was about it. The TV, I could have gotten rid of it. You've analysed the Glen Seaton burnout at Oran Park in 1997 a bazillion times. Bless that times. line locker. It was a very good one. Uh, Peter Barrington, um, uh, sorry, Barrytown, I should say. Uh, why do racing categories persist with aero downforce in this century? It's well understood, makes race cars boring to watch and hard to race. Peter's got a lot of good points here. Aero is one of the evils of modern motor racing. Agree? Can we forward this to, like, say, the Supercars Commission and maybe those, those F1 blokes? That I, we could- I think they've been told this a million times, yet still find ways to not implement it. There's always or an implement excuse something as to that, why, yeah, yeah ne- next year right. or the year after or the new gen car. Oh, we're going to And ca- Formula One's the same, right? Yeah. Like, it's, yeah. everyone can see the problem from a mile away that you can't drive within three seconds of someone in qualifying without losing lap time mm. and you expect the race to be good. Kidding yourself. We just, it's a thing that we just, oh, but the drivers won't be able to drive the cars. Oh, but they won't be used to it. They'll be fine. They're race drivers. They find ways around stuff. That is the nature of motor racing. So then you take away one element of arguments. There'll still be 43 others, but make the, like, make them have, I think having a wing on a race car looks good, but make it ineffective. Just make it do oh, nothing. Go back to the 93 VP. Mark one Make set it, up it, where if you rip the front spoiler off, it actually has more front downforce. <laughs> oh, they all still whinge and moan about those spoilers back then. You've got to put a splitter in it to actually yeah, make yeah. the downforce. <laughs> Bring back the shark fin AU front uh, splitter. So when it went off the road, it just not only ploughed the ground, but it ploughed itself. Uh, that took a little while to get redesigned and change that one up. Uh, Jason Robb, chances of a first-time Supercars champion in 2021. Now, that basically means... Anyone but Red Bull. Yes. Just about, or James Courtney. 
pretty much. So uh, you, certainly, you certainly wouldn't want to uh, rule it out based on that. Otherwise, it's a foregone conclusion. But you'd have to say the odds are with uh, against it. Will Davison, Anton Di Pasquale, they would probably disagree. Cam, Chaz Mostert would disagree. Cam Waters. Cam Waters would disagree. So there's a few contenders there that you could make cases for that could very well say to Jason that the chances are good. So I wouldn't bet against it. Well, as a neutral, they're the four blokes really that we mm. want to see step up and take it to these Red Bull guys. Yep. Um, yeah, if Jamie's got another championship in him, that will be impressive in itself. Uh, and Shane, obviously, we were talking about him before with a new engineer and stuff. So, yeah, let's uh, let's see how it unfolds. Time will tell is my way to get around all these questions that we don't know the answer for because we just don't have a crystal ball. If we did, we'd make a mozza. We'd make a mozza. Uh, Peter Oliver, oh, actually... I think this is more for me personally than anything to, to answer. He says, you've worked with some great people from drivers to team owners putting together things like the podcast, the Shannon's TV show, and now the books you've been doing. Were there any drivers who were extremely hard to work with, weren't interested in your questions or giving out information? I thought about this question and I, I, I cannot think of someone who was extremely hard to work with. I think there's been some people who are hard to work with not because they're trying to be, just because it's like when you ask a question of someone about something that happened 40 years ago and they can't remember, there's probably, a, you get a little frustrated by it, but you go, well, actually, I don't remember what I had for breakfast last week, let alone what I did. I haven't even been here for 40 years on the planet. I'm close, but I'm not quite there yet. But I can't remember anyone who was dismissive or unhelpful or hard to work with or, I mean, sometimes over the journey... There's some information that you do get told that you park, that you don't publish, that you don't write about or you hold off on writing about, but that's not a – I can't remember anyone who's been mega difficult or painful to deal with at all. So uh, I think by and large uh, had a good run with all that sort of stuff. Have you ever been threatened by anyone in supercars or motorsport to not write this, not do that? Have you ever been uh, – can, can you answer this from your perspective? I guess it's a little bit of a different thing when you're uh, sort of spent the last 10 years in the in the online news game where you're trying to find things out and write things that people don't want out there and don't want out there yet. So uh, there is a bit more argy-bargy, a few more uh, panels dented in that uh, in that part of the paddock than it is. When, when you're on like a Shannon's Legends is a good example where the guys are in there to have a chat and reminisce and really enjoy their careers effectively. And naturally, someone like yourself who who understands it, who knows a lot about the game, who's going to ask the right questions and in the right way, you're probably not going to have too many dramas. So, yeah, certainly there's uh, tempers flare on occasion uh, in the uh, in the modern supercars paddock, but that's just part of the business. Like if you've got a glass drawer about that stuff, you shouldn't be doing it. How do you know whether it's a driver, a team owner, someone from supercars or motorsport or something? How do you know that you really you've really irked someone? Is it a case of you see the name pop up on your phone? Is it the email that pops in? When someone's really pissed with something you've written, what method do they go you on? Do they call direct? Do they send a nasty email? Do they fire a text? What's the way of the world? It's been a long time since my motorsport news days where generally people just picked up the phone and gave you a spray. What, what's, the, what's the best way that everyone gives you a spray now? Or do they just 
hit you with all of those different methods? I think you talk about like seeing the name come up on the phone. I think the oh, uh, who's the most, who's the scariest the, name? Well, the worst one is when you get no caller ID and <laughs> they do a drive-by shooting of a of a threat and then hang up. That uh, that happened this year, which was uh, a bit beyond the pale. But um, yeah, I think in general, I actually like when the when someone does call for a conversation, and even if they're pretty heated at the start, you've got to have that chat because you can't just have that hanging around, uh, have any sort of grudge going on that you don't know about. So, um, yeah, no, I've always welcomed the, the direct, uh, direct feedback on that, even if uh, it's, it's unpleasant to start with. It's, uh, the, the teams and drivers know that the media is an important part of the game and likewise we understand that sometimes, yeah, you're going to crack a few eggs to, to try to make an omelette for the fans to read. Rip the Band-Aid. Hurts at the moment, at the, at the start. But it's the best thing you could do once you get down the track a little while. Doesn't feel like it when you've ripped it, though. Uh, Ryan Gutton, why do all podium getters, pretty much regardless of category, wear the tyre manufacturer's hats? It's not a coincidence that this happens. This is, well, they do it because it's in the rules. It's in the regulations. Yeah, and I guess that's one that uh, you don't really think about too much. But it, it sort of grew more organically because nowadays we're just used to having a control tyre in all these categories across the world and supercars as an example the the podium hat is essentially a property that supercars commercial owns mm. and it's it's given to Dunlop as part of their package and and for Dunlop like normally they only get a name check in an interview with a driver when the driver's saying that the tire blew up it uh, fell off the rim it blah 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 so this is an actual chance to have a positive connection with the driver mm. of they're standing there smiling, holding a trophy, clearly on Dunlops. They never say, oh, the Dunlops were great today. It's not like the open tyre days where Larry would extol the virtues of a Dunlop or Dick Johnson or John Bauer. Uh, everyone's on a Dunlop and no one's copping cash from Dunlop. So uh, this is their way of uh, getting some commercial love for their the, the investment and the expense that they're tipping into the sport. Mm. So. But the, the actual origins of back in the open tyre days, and it's the same through like F1, IndyCar, Supercar, all that, like the tyre the hat's been a thing for, for decades. Mm. So why that sort of had that association, even though it's logical, there are plenty of other components, suppliers, sponsors too that um, could have been in that spot, but it's just become such a tradi- tradition that um, it, it would seem sacrilege not to, say, offer that to Dunlop as part of the package. Well, if you go back to Dunlop when they first started as control tyres, so that was 2002, and at the time some teams, particularly the Holden Racing team, carried Bridgestone mm. backing over. Bridgestone was the control tyre for the first three years of the control tyre era from 99 to 01. Dunlop got the contract and has had it ever since, obviously with some multiple renewals, hasn't been one big contract. But I remember that at Phillip Island, so that must have been a very early round of 2002, Mark Scaife won. Todd Kelly came out racing, you know, sister Walkinshaw team on the podium. And I'm pretty sure from my memory bank that those boys were fined for not wearing the Dunlop hat. I don't think they wore Bridgestone or an alternative brand. I think they just wore their team cap or something else because they weren't Dunlop. And I... I guess they were fine because it was in the rules at the time or they were fined for something else and then they wrote a rule to say that you had to wear it after that. I don't yeah, think and I think like there was, there's a bit of like the post-race interview plus the podium. It's not just the podium that you had to have the hat on for. It may have been three grand or something from, uh, from I'd have to look it up, but um, yeah, it was a couple of grand, I think, yeah. that they, 
they got stung. And I guess in supercars, when you look at the podium in general, it's it's one big supercars it's commercial, commercial department yeah. platform. And that's why at Ipswich, and I think you know where I'm going with this, last year when McLaughlin and the team got pinged for, was it 10 grand or whatever it was for the poster, that's a form of advertising on a podium. That's like... Um, parading a, a, a banner across the front of all those sponsors that are paying to be there when, yes, I know it's a poster, yes, it's celebrationary, yes, you know, it's probably the best 10 grand that they spent really in the grand scheme of things because of the publicity and the money that it helped generate for camp quality and all those things that Ryan Story and DJR Team Penske did with it. But that's the reason why because the podium, to the, to the, the punter at home watching on TV, it's the podium. But to supercars and to the commercial rights holders and to all that sort of thing, that's part of their deliverable that gets paid for by their sponsors and that's an opportunity to give them some love and put them on a platform and put them in front of your eyeballs. So when anything gets on there that's not paying to be there, it's kind of a bit pay-to-play kind of thing, then there's a bit of an issue. The one that sticks in my mind is I think the 96 Sandown 500, which was oh, the that's Tickford the 500. One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, obviously Craig Lowndes and, and Greg Murphy won that race for the Holden Racing Team. And I think Brocky and, and Mazira were third mm. and they bowled up with their HSV towels and draped them over the, the podium, uh, podium backing banner that had Tickford all over it. And even as an aside from that, because uh, at the time – it wasn't in the sub regs to have this. So the little, you know, the little stickers that sit above the racing numbers with the, you know, obviously it's the- um, The event name. The event name. And, and date, sometimes the date yeah. and that sort of thing. It's the little sticker that sits above the number panel on the doors of the cars. It, the the one for that event had Tickford 500 Sandown. Sorry, it had Tickford Sandown 500. The Holden teams all clipped off, well, definitely HRT and I think some of the others, all clipped off the Tickford bit so if you look at the photos from 1996 Sandown, you'll see that sticker. Go and find a photo online. There might be some um, on our website from stories we've done. And have a close look or on the TV broadcast. There's no tick for it. They clipped it out. It didn't say you couldn't do that in the sub regs. Of course, super at the time, supercars didn't exist. That was the weekend that Avesco, the formation of it was announced. So they've got more savvy with protecting the commercial interests of uh, the sport and the championship over the years because there's no way in hell that if that happened today and a team clipped off a sponsor, let's say because, for example, there's a super cheap car and it's the Repco Supercars Championship, if you clip Repco off the sticker and <laughs> then if you went and won Bathurst and walked out with a Repco flag <laughs> and hung it on the podium at Bathurst, imagine the fine. It'd be a corker. It'd be really big, really big. Big fines at Bathurst, I couldn't imagine it. Yeah, who would have thought? Who would have ever thought? Um, Scott Moy, uh, this is opinion. He prefaces this with opinion. Why didn't anybody build a team around Alan Jones when he decided to base himself here after the Beatrice F1 thing? He always seemed to be second fiddle to an owner-driver like Longhurst or Seaton. Um, well, it's an interesting question, an interesting theory, Remember, he had a deal with Toyota. Mm. He, he raced for Tom's Toyota in Japan in a sports car and a super touring car. Didn't last very long from memory, but I think it's because AJ's just – he's AJ. He's his own bloke and he does what he wants how he wants. And um, I think he's his touring car racing, having read his book, which I really enjoyed that book actually, I sort of got the vibe that his real racing career to him is Formula One. 
and the touring car racing stuff after that was was good. Like he enjoyed it. It was good to do, but it wasn't the burning pedestal of the sport and of his uh, life in racing. And you know, on a, you know, if he had a win, great. But it wasn't like the the highs and lows were very different on the graph in that touring car phase. And he was paid to do a job, and he did a job, and he punted some cars around, and that was that. Yeah, and I think he's he's been pretty open with the fact that uh, one of the big things about going touring car racing was to to make some cash after his F1 career had finished. Um, and it's one of those things in terms of why no one built a team around him. Well, it's even if you're an F1 world champion, it's not <laughs> he did always that for it's, it's not always that easy. Um, and you've got to sort of go after the deals yourself. Um, and he he ended up in a good little era there where he was with two cigarette back teams. Certainly, uh, he, he was with Tony Longhurst, Frank Gardner, Benson Hedges there for a couple of years and uh, wasn't super happy, I don't think, with how it was sort of Tony's team. And then him going to Tocitos at the end of 92, um, as, as Glenn talks about in the book, like that was all paid for. Um, AJ's salary was paid for completely by Philip Morris, Peter Jackson. Um, yeah, and then obviously, yeah, as, as we all know, that ended up with uh, AJ taking that uh, sponsorship and starting his own team. So, yeah, it's one of those things in terms of no one building a team around him while well, you sort of go and got to go and do the deals yourself, especially in an era like that where there are a lot of owner drivers. Like he drove also for Bondi, I think, um, between yeah, the between the Supra and the uh, yep. the Longhurst stuff coming yeah, up. So. Actually finished third at Bathurst that year. And and th- that links back to the previous question. Remember that that was the first year of the Tui's 1000 and what did he do? Walked out on the podium, cracked open his Caltex race suit to show his Foster's T-shirt. That'd be a twenty grand fine these days. Like that's a, that's maybe another whole podcast in podium celebrations where people have taken the piss. There's a podcast in that, no doubt, no I doubt. Like it. There's a few fines and penalties, and that Sandown one from '96 of what happened was uh, another good example. So maybe that's something that we can do. But it wasn't really a period where people built teams around a, you know, like a um, franchise player. It was kind of owner drivers everywhere if you owned the team you drove for the team or if you drove for the team you owned the team so yeah, and they might have a second car or or need a co-driver as was the yeah. case bondi Longhurst, cedo perfect yeah. examples yeah um if, if anyone could have had a, a deal drop out of the sky to be built around them you would think an f1 world champ would have but yeah there just wasn't a deal out there yeah true uh matt oh, how do you say matt's surname do you reckon nikiforov I'd go with that. Yeah, sounds good. Sorry, Matt, if I've I've made a meal of that, but I've done my best. Has a car ever run the full? Sorry, has a car that's ever run the full series gone back to back in a championship, both the Australian Touring Car Championship and Supercars era? Well, Pete Gagan's Mustang won the championship multiple times, but that's in the single race era of the championship, where there was one race a year to determine the champion. So we can't really count that, really, can we? Um, Bob James Camaro. He went back-to-back in the same Camaro but with a different engine. I think he went for a bigger engine the next year in 72. Uh, Other than that, though, if you look at the supercars era, although Jamie Winkup had years where he won the championship in a row, in two years in a row or three years in a row, Scaife won three in a row for HRT, um, they debuted new cars within those seasons, so they didn't use the one car. For the full season. For the full season, which is what Matt's asking. So the guy that springs out to me is Ambrose. He won in 03 and 04 in the same BA Falcon that he used right through. 
He drove it in the endurance races with Ingle with the reliveried dual Pertec Caltex livery. Um, and of course, he drove it in 05 as well, the last year where he probably could have and should have won the championship, but but didn't. So uh, that's pretty, and I reckon that's why that car, of all of the Ford V8 supercars out there, I reckon that's just about the most valuable. The only one that really contends is the Craiglands Wink Up 06 Bathurst winning better Falcon. I reckon that that's right up there too. But and and we were talking about uh, Matty White's team before. I think they've got a car now that's won two uh, Super 2 titles, having done the full season Good in point. two. Good so uh, Bryce mm. Forward driving it in uh, mm. 2019 and Thomas Randall in 2020. And I think from memory, that's the first Nissan Altima. That's the car that uh, was James Moffat's car at the very beginning of that program that was the, remember the launch livery, the orange and black in 2012 that was unveiled? That's that car. That Well, it's the chassis. Obviously, it's it's changed a lot over the years, but at, at its core, it's it's the same car. Uh, Mitch L with the next question. We're nearly at the finish line here. There's only a couple of questions to go. What happened to the Gen 3 rule of not needing to be a V8? Is it still a thing, or do all the cars still have to run a V8? So good question because it's not the kind of thing that's put out there publicly all the time. From your underst- from my understanding, the whole let's open up the doors to anything but a V8 has kind of been closed. Is that the case? Yeah. I mean, we haven't seen like a printed rule book for this uh, Gen <laughs> 3 rig yet, but supercars have certainly said said to, uh, to me, if not uh, elsewhere, that uh, it is just V8 um, for Gen 3. And naturally, with the cars that are confirmed to be on the grid, the Mustang and the Camaro, they're going to be V8. What V8 is probably the question because there's uh, a lot of work going on at the moment to uh, introduce road-based V8 engines from Ford and and Chevy, the Coyote being a logical uh, sort of way to go for the Ford teams and there's some LS options. I think it's a bit more complex on the, on the GM side. Mm. So a lot of work will need to go into that between now and um, the start of 22 to have those rigs on the grid. So on that basis... Surely, just make it V8 supercars again. Why wouldn't you? Well, I guess the thing is that even though it's easy for them to say now that, yep, we're sticking the V8 course, if you have a manufacturer walk in to the building tomorrow and say, yeah, we're keen to go go racing, but we want a V6 turbo, I just feel that with the way that supercars is so compliant when they're trying to court manufacturers that they would backflip on that in a heartbeat. That It'd be, yes, sir. How many turbos do you like, sir? Um, if it meant grabbing yeah, Toyota or Nissan or Mad- yeah. anyone, Toyota anyone. being the the biggest fish in the in the pond for sure. So, mm. yeah, V eight for now. But uh, I don't think that. Uh, to, to be fair, it's probably not right to just just rule out anything else categorically. Mm. But at the moment, they're saying V eight. Okay, uh, one to come, Craig Condo. What would the potential? I've, I've shortened his question a little bit here, but the basic crux of it is. What's the potential lap time on soft tyres at Bathurst? Because, of course, we don't run softs. We run hards because of the, the nature of the track and uh, the loadings. But if you did bolt a set on. So we consulted someone who should know, two-time Bathurst 1000 winner and the new Shell V-Power Racing Team 17 driver, Will Davison. Quick cheeky text during the week. Davo reckons a mid to low two, which is not that much quicker than what was Cam Waters' pole time there, mid three this year. So... It's not hugely faster, but when you think about it, Bathurst is not a track with as much uh, power down, traction, drive, where extra grip will really help. Obviously, it's going to help in 
punching off turn one. It's going to help punching off the elbow. It's going to help punching on a pit straight. But, of course, you've got, you know, the chase is the chase. You're pretty much maxed out on the speed you can do there anyway. So you won't get as big a gain at Bathurst as you would at other tracks. So that kind of makes sense, really, when you think about yeah. it that way. It'd definitely be interesting to see it, whether they would have to, uh, certainly to do a, a race stint, you would think, on a soft, they would need to back off some settings as well that would um, that would impact that. But it's not a super high deck track either. So um, so that means give them a set of softs for the shootout. shootout. Why why wouldn't you? Well, it's no different to IndyCar for the five hundred for the fast nine. Don't they give them more turbo boost? Because they want to see some sexy numbers. They want to have records broken. They want to have something else to talk about. Why not one set? That's it. So you'd lob them straight in the shootout. You wouldn't bring back the old shootout warm-up session that uh, sometimes oh, would produce a better number yeah, than look, the shootout itself. Look, they, that's the first thing all the teams and drivers would say, wouldn't they? So, uh, yeah, look, maybe give them a chance that they can run a set during a practice session in the lead-up or something with the limit on how many laps they can do on them. But let them loose. Let, let, them, let them have a crack. Uh, or it's artificial, someone would say. But... Let them have a crack. Like you'll see the stalks of their eyes by the end of it. it. Like if they've got a chance to punch a low two or a high one in a supercar around Bathurst, geez, that's that's moving. That's- it's funny how good the times were, even on the hard tire this year at Bathurst. Giving the twelve month, given the twelve months earlier, sort of talking about them uh, trimming some of the horsepower out, trimming some downforce out that we you know wouldn't see these numbers again. Like they always find a way to reclaim yeah. ground, whether it's supercars, Formula One, Indy cars. You got to, could you imagine if they hadn't pruned the regulations on all these categories over the years, where we'd be now? The sort of speeds and it'd be off the chart, really. They just keep pegging them back because they keep finding ways to find back the performance and the speed and the arrow and the, the grip and all those sorts of things. It's, it's quite amazing. Hey, thanks, everyone, for your questions. We've gone through a whole pile of them. There was a big list that we, we couldn't get to in time. Um, it's been fantastic. Whenever we do a call-out, we get lots of material, but we get lots of varied and wide types of questions as well so thanks again everyone keep uh, sending them in via the 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 facebook page is probably the the main place where a lot of them come from via the email there's a a contact page on our v8sleuth.com.au website as well and a big thank you to the people who've helped us with some of the answers here uh mitch timms and will davis in particular who uh, answered our calls or our text messages to help give some feedback and some uh, viewpoints to the fans um for our our Q&A. This is, well, we're counting down to Christmas. We've only got one podcast to go before Christmas, but the good news is, unlike last year, where we kind of shut down the podcast for a little while to draw breath, we're going to keep pressing on. So we're going to have a bunch of episodes, some chats with people, some look-backs at some of the categories. Uh, We've done Super 2. We've done Super Touring. What do you reckon about a Thunderdome NASCAR Oscar show? I reckon there'd be a good chat in that. All right, done. All right, we'll put that on the list. Uh, as always, if you've got plenty of ideas of who you'd like to hear us chat to in 2021, by all means, send them through. In the meantime, though, thanks again for listening, everyone. That has been episode 84 of the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken. We'll join you again next week with more motorsport chat. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online. Thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, 
the number two, and oil and find out.